Hey, Dylan Kelly here, host of the Wave Break Podcast. Excited to get into this episode, but first, here's a quick word from our sponsor. If you're looking to grow your business, there's only one way, and that is by building real quality customer relationships. Most marketing software will claim they do this, but they never deliver on their promises, and you need to demand more from your marketing software. And that's where Klaviyo comes in. Klaviyo helps you build meaningful customer relationships by listening and understanding cues from your customers, allowing you to easily turn that information into valuable marketing messages. And that's why 10,000 innovative brands, including all of our clients at Wavebreak, have switched to Klaviyo. Now, What's the secret to building those customer relationships? Tune in to Clavio's Beyond Black Friday docuseries to find out and unlock exact marketing strategies you can use to keep momentum going all year round. Just head over to clavio.com slash beyond BF for more. Link is going to be down in the show notes below. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Wavebreak Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Kelly, founder of Wavebreak. And if you're new here at Wavebreak, we help e-commerce stores maximize their email revenue and stop leaving money on the table. And I'm super excited for you to be listening to this episode. It's a really good one. But before we get into that, I have a story to tell you guys about a guy named Milton S. Hershey. And if his name sounds familiar, it's because he's the chocolate guy. Hershey's chocolate. He's the guy who started it all. And so uh, why am I telling you Milton Hershey's story? Well, because it's a really good story and you need to hear it. So basically, this dude, Milton Hershey, was 26 years old and he was broke. He's flat out broke, penniless. And the reason why he was broke is because he tried to start two businesses and he failed. And which in the 1800s, you know, <laughs> that's uh, that's a lot. It's not just like launching a website and failing. It's like, you know, you got to get a lot of stuff together in the physical world, the real world, and, you know, try to build this business. And he did it twice and they both failed. And he ended up broke. But he was like, you know what? I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep going. And so he kept working and he eventually created a caramel company called Lancaster Caramel Company. And he was able to turn this company into a million-dollar company, and he sold it for a million dollars in the year 1900. He sold it on August 10th in 1900. And I know that because I just Googled it for this. And he made a million dollars from it. And a million dollars in 1900 is equal to about, like a dollar then is equal to $29 in 2018. So let's just say that it's 30 million. So he sold it for 30 million. And then he went on to create Hershey's. Like, I think a lot of people think like, oh, he just made Hershey's. But like, what you start to notice when you look at really successful entrepreneurs, like Hershey's is now valued, like their market cap, their publicly traded company um, on the, the New York Stock Exchange. And their market cap is $30 billion. $30 billion, which is just insane. But the thing is, like, he didn't build this company overnight, and it wasn't even his first company, right? Like, he had already sold a company for $30 million. So the reality is, listen, there's always going to be people growing businesses faster. There's always going to be businesses growing bigger. And chances are, that's because they did it before, and it's not their first rodeo. Um, So don't beat yourself up if that's the case. 
And this is a concept that you can apply everywhere, this lesson where it's like, you don't have to start from scratch. Starting from scratch is gonna hurt you so much in every area of your business because here's the reality. Somebody has already figured out the best way to do things. They figured out the best framework for Facebook ads. They figured out the best this or that, the best this or that. All the things have pretty much been figured out, especially the most efficient way to do things. And so why am I talking about this? Because email is one of those things. You don't have to figure out how to put together an insane, complicated email strategy. All you gotta do is download our checklist, the e-commerce email success checklist. It literally will take you five minutes and you're gonna unlock six to seven figures of additional revenue every single year, depending on the size of your business, when you take this checklist and you implement it. It's literally that simple. We've done the hard work. We know what works and what doesn't. All you gotta do is take this page which is hours and hours of hard work, thousands and thousands of emails, and you can literally get our secrets for email marketing for e-commerce stores. Like we're on track to generate over $20 million in email revenue for our clients this year, just this year alone. And like, I mean, that's like tens of thousands of dollars a day. And the way we're able to do it is with the method that I literally reveal in this checklist. So you can get that checklist at emailsuccesschecklist.com. Once again, that's emailsuccesschecklist.com link is going to be down in the show notes below. So go check that out. If you haven't downloaded it already, link is down in the show notes. Click that button, get that checklist. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, make sure to tap that subscribe button. So every week on the show, I interview people behind some of the top brands in e-commerce. And today is no different. I'm really excited for this one because today on the show, I have Luke Droulet from Parachute. So he is the CMO there, and he's also employee number one. So he's been there literally since day, I think he said seven or eight, like literally the first week. And they've now grown to over 100 employees while taking the marketplace by storm. And he's been there every step of the way. He's been leading their marketing. And Parachute, if you haven't heard of them, I mean, you probably have. It's ParachuteHome.com. They're a popular direct-to-consumer home essentials company. And today, Luke is going to be sharing all of the secrets. Let's get right into it. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Luke. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm really excited for this interview just because, I mean, you guys have been growing like crazy. Um, Obviously, you're on the Forbes 30 under 30, things like that. And just to get started, for people who don't know, can you just give a kind of high-level overview of what Parachute is if they haven't heard of it? When I mean, they've probably heard of it, though. (laughs) <laughs> I hope so. And, you know, hopefully I do a good enough job with the intro that they piques their interest to learn more. So Parachute, you know, we're a brand that make you feel at home. Uh, we make premium quality sheets, towels, pillows, mattress, rugs, all things kind of soft and comfortable that you'll find in the different rooms of your home. We have predominantly online, but we have seven stores in L.A., New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Dallas, and also Portland, and then also a partnership with Sola for the wedding registry platform. Nice, and now obviously you guys have grown a ton. I mean, you guys are pretty much everywhere in terms of marketing. But before (laughs) we get into that and where you're at now, can you kind of take us back and just take us back to the beginning, like when did you get involved with Parachute? So now obviously you're the CMO, but it it wasn't Mm -hmm. always that way. It certainly was not always that way. So I got, involved with the brand roughly a week after it launched. So this was roughly January 2014 through a very bizarre series of um, interactions that led me to RALK, the founder and CEO. Um, when we had like this crazy two-hour interview that 
included packing boxes, answering customer service phone calls, and all that kind of good stuff. And then from there, kind of started with the company as the director of operations. At that time, Ariel was really focused on investor relations and like the brand vision. And so somebody had to keep the lights on. And so you know, in those early days, it was running to storage unit, public storage units to get our product, aka our DC, and shipping it out to people, creating handwritten notes, just thinking about all of the basic systems and practices that you would need for a business. And I think fortunately, as the brand experienced success through you know organic press, word of mouth, I got, and we raised enough money where we could hire appropriate, a proper COO. And at that point, I then transitioned to the head of digital role, really building up the tech and marketing teams, testing out more paid marketing. And then once we hired a CTO, I transitioned to my current incarnation as the CMO. I feel like you talk about it like this is just like a little small business with like five people in like a garage. <laughs> but it's well, There's not. times where it feels like it. I mean, we were in a co-working space with the Launchpad Accelerator. So we were, you know, just above a general assembly in Santa Monica. And I was fortunate. I think it's like a process of osmosis to be surrounded by other founders, other companies, mentors, like through that accelerator program got exposed to a lot of people. And so, you know, part of me is still thinks that we are in that space. And I think it helps kind of motivate you, you know, yes, we're, I'm sitting right now in this beautiful office in Culver City in a room that's appropriately named Cotton. <laughs> but you know, it's like, you got to remember where you came from and what got you to where you were at. Totally. And speaking of like where you guys are now, can you somehow like give me a rundown and the listeners just kind of a, like an idea of like the size of the business, whether that's revenue or employees, just so we have an idea of like the scope and size of things now. Yeah, we're about a hundred employees now dispersed between our HQ and Culver city in Los Angeles, California. And then also between our stores that I mentioned earlier. Nice. And so you were there from day one. Well, day, what did you say? Day seven? Day eight? Day seven, day eight. It's, you know, I'm a day one adjacent. Of course, um, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say Ariel before that point had, you know, gone to factories in different countries in Europe and, you know, moved the brand from New York to LA, got invited to, you know, became a part of one of the classes at the Launchpad Accelerator. So there's a lot of pre-launch prep that was done outside of my purview. And then once the brand launched, I kind of stepped in and have been a part of the journey until now. Right. And that's awesome that you've been there this whole time. So I, I kind of want to dive into that. So like, obviously, when you first started, you're wearing a lot of hats. And like, have you always been kind of like focused on the marketing side of things, though, for the most part? Or like, how did you get into the CMO role? Yeah, um, I think marketing has always been a part of my purview. I think it was just a question of like, how big a part of my job it was. Um, if you think about the early stages in a company, it's like first is first, you got to establish product market fit and you need to make sure that people like what you have to say and what you have to offer. And so in those days, it was much more important that when somebody placed an order online, that product was in stock, that order transmitted to a third party distribution, that order then transmitted, the person got the email that we appropriately were tracking in on Google analytics, um, that that information was then appropriately disseminated in you know, QuickBooks for accounting and on our financial model. So I did spend more of my time setting up the backend systems all the way down to like even HR because in order to make sure you, it's kind of like if people like the product that you make, there has to be the appropriate service component and fulfillment of that. Um, and then as we raise more money, you know, it was less a conversation about putting all of our 
equity dollars or all of our fundraise dollars towards buying inventory and then having the ability to you know hire people and spend money on marketing and you know as the business has grown you can then start to finance inventory without having to raise money to do so and so as we've you know as the business has grown so too has our ability to test out different marketing mediums and really look at ways to expand the brand nice and so that's one thing i want to dive into especially since you're the cmo there is like how has your marketing changed as you've grown the business like so like obviously i mean i'm sure it's not as easy as like oh we just keep dumping more money into you know our ad spend and the revenue keeps growing (laughs) so like what kind of like i mean from 2014 to now like can you kind of give us a rundown of your marketing like how it's changed how it's evolved as the company has grown yeah um the first year was really, as I mentioned, through earned media and owned media. So we were fortunate that at the time that we launched, there wasn't as many direct-to-consumer brands in the home space. And so the whole, the familiar, now familiar tropes about cutting out the middleman, going direct-to-consumer for those types of products garnered a lot of press coverage. And then beyond that, it was the early days of building out our Instagram presence, which has now become a huge part of our marketing mix, and then developing closer relationships with customers via email. Once we raised money, 2015 was about kind of testing and learning, primarily on digital channels, you know, AdWords, Facebook, a little bit of podcasts. Um, And then 2016 was kind of honing in on a more appropriate strategy. It was again, primarily focused on paid social because, you know, around those times it, it wasn't as expensive or competitive on Facebook to grow a brand. And then 2017 until now has kind of followed along a familiar kind of trajectory of diversification. You know, we think it's important to be where our customers are both online and offline, you know, as a consumer, you do have your phone on you at all times. You're constantly looking at it. So it's important to be there and it's important to be on you know, mobile and desktop devices. Uh, but it's also important to engage with consumers in different ways, whether it be in stores, pop-ups, you know, billboards, podcasts. Um, there's a variety of ways that you can engage consumers. And um, for a brand where storytelling is such an important part of what we do, it, it became you know, increasingly evident that we needed to pursue that path. Right. And I think something crazy about your brand is it's like literally everywhere. Um, and I know that's a big part of like your strategy and your approach from digging in and doing some research on you. But like you don't like to have all your eggs in one basket. And I think it's really interesting. Like, I mean, you guys advertise literally pretty much everywhere, like even in like the subway and on the train and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think, you know, a lot of it in the early days is thinking about it's like we're a brand that delivers comfort. And it's like, um, I think in some early conversations in turn, it's like where are uncomfortable places in which we can kind of provide a happy distraction. So if you think about it, you're in the subway or you're stuck in traffic, it's uncomfortable. It could be hot. It can be sweaty. And the last thing you want to do is, you know, be there. And so it's like, you know, in the subway, you look up and you see our ads or you're in your car. It's a, you're, you know, gridlock. Hopefully you're not driving fast and focusing very intensely on our billboards. Yeah. Um, and it's like, that's where we're there. It's like, I, I think when you start with the notion that advertisements are distractions and that they are, no, nobody is saying I am going into my day and I want to be bombarded with media. Uh, so it's like, if we're going to be there, how can we provide, create a sense of comfort, create a sense of like that feeling of home. And so, um, 
it was important that it didn't happen on, as I mentioned, mobile devices, and then it could facilitate online conversations. You know, if you are looking at a subway ad and you like what you see, you know, then you're going to go online to look further. Or similarly with billboards, with podcasts, it was a similar notion of storytelling. You know, these the reason that you tune into a specific podcast is not only for the content or subject matter itself, but also for the host. And you know, in a lot of ways, these people are like influencers. You know, they've they've developed and cultivated these communities where people like what they have to say. And so it was important for us that, you know, when those host read ads came out that they were genuine. And it's like that include that meant that they had to experience the product, feel it, touch it, ask questions, you know, talk to us on the phone. With with everything we do, it's important that people it like it, like the product for what it is, like the brand and the service experience for what it is. Because without that, without that, you know, authentic customer relationship, you're just kind of a, a marketing shell company. Right. And I think you do really great marketing too, because it's not just like, ah, here's another ad on like a wall. It's like, <laughs> like I'm looking at a photo of one right now and it's like just 500 more minutes and it's like somebody like stretching in bed. It's like, that's great. Like I want to take my phone out and send that to somebody. It's like, ah, so true. That's me today right now. Right. And then you yeah. kind of get that virality from it. And it's just kind of like, yeah, like you said, like they have their phone in their pocket. They just sent the photo and it's like, oh, what's parachute? What is this? Yeah. And it's like, you know, at a certain point, I don't have enough space on a billboard to write parachute as a brand that makes X, Y, Z. This is why we're better than our competitors, or this is why you should choose us. Um, ultimately, you're going to have to make those decisions. So it's like the advertisement is the start starting of a conversation. And I think it's like if advertising is meant to set people's expectations, it's like we want it to be visually rich. We want it to be beautiful. We want it to kind of appeal to your aesthetic, your sensibilities, and you know, make you smile, hopefully. And then from there, it's like you come to the website, and we can start explaining things. We can get into the value propositions, and we can, you know, hopefully convince you. You know, I'm I'm understand that when you sell a premium product, it's not going to appeal to everyone. Not everyone's going to be able to jump on board. And I think increasingly, we've become okay with knowing like who and who isn't our customer and how we can best serve them. Yeah, that's awesome. And like speaking of your marketing, like as the business has grown on the marketing side, like what's the what would you say like the number one problem you've faced in that sense? Like as you've grown the business on the marketing side, what would that number one problem be? Um, I think the the biggest, maybe not a problem, but a challenge is that the rate at which things are changing within the media landscape kind of requires you to revisit your playbook. And you know, once a quarter once a year, you know, just make sure that the strategy and whatever your brand North Star is still makes sense. Um, so I think that's been the hard, the, the most challenging, but also most interesting part of the job is thinking about, you know, the way that we talked about parachute five years ago, isn't the same as it was three, one, you know, even six months ago. And I think that's been the biggest, that's been the most interesting part of the, the role is thinking, you know, with new competitors, existing competitors and, you know, well-established incumbent brands, where do you fit within someone's life? Mm, that's a good point. And it's, it's not so much like a, hey, fingers crossed these Facebook ads keep spitting out sales. It's more like... Exactly. Yeah. That's so great. that's been... Yeah, it's, I, but that's fun. I mean, it's really why I have a job. <laughs> right. And I mean, things are always going to be shifting. And the reality is like, I mean, like you said, like you look at everything every six months or so. I mean, things shift fast, but it's not like you're going to wake up tomorrow and everything's going to be totally different. Yeah, it's the incremental changes. And so it's like a lot of 
where I sit now, you know, I have purview across all the different facets of marketing. And so I, I try to look at it as almost like a portfolio. And it's like different parts of the portfolio are going to have to do different things. You know, not everything is tied to ROI or return on ad spend. And that's because ultimately there's ways you can deepen brand engagement with that don't necessarily immediately translate into a sale. Right. So how often do you look at this stuff and like how often are you like planning in advance as far as like your marketing calendar goes? Uh, as far as reporting, we generally go like weekly, monthly, quarterly. And then, um, you know, each quarter we try to look at at a holistic level what's working and what's not. And then at the yearly level, that's kind of when you sit with the rest of the executive team and are saying, you know, where is the business trending towards? What are our big initiatives and what do we care about and then how are we going to achieve it because ultimately you know i'm i'm one part of a much larger uh machine if you will and it's like i need to make sure that anything that i'm doing from the marketing side of things doesn't adversely impact the website experience or the store experience or um you know fulfillment or and vice versa and so i think what's we make sure that internally there's enough cross-functional meetings such that people are on the same page. You know, we want to make sure that we're aligned such that there's a consistency in the customer experience across all touch points, both um, marketing and otherwise. Right. So like, what is like, is that kind of like where the whole like quarterly kind of check-ins come in? That's when you more communicate across the different parts of the brand? Yeah. I mean, we have um, internal all hands meetings on a monthly basis. We use OKRs on a quarterly basis to kind of align on what are key business initiatives. And then we use, kind of weekly cross-functional meetings to make sure that, you know, we're on the same page in terms of what happened last week and what we want to do in the following weeks. Got it. Cool. And so like, obviously now, like, I mean, the beginning, you were really hands-on with everything because I mean, it was just, it was just, it was basically just you and like one, was it just you and her to begin with? Yeah, it was Ariel and myself. And then as you know, each, as we were able to raise more money, we were able to bring on more people. And there was more kind of clear delineation of responsibilities. Got it. And so, like, how were you able to scale yourself? Because I feel like marketing is one of these things that, especially, like, people who are involved early in the business, it's, like, the last thing they almost want to let go of. But at the same time, like, you got to keep, just like you're you're talking here, like, now you got to start, you know, thinking about more big picture stuff. Like, what was that process like, removing yourself from some of the day-to-day of the marketing stuff? I think it's just realizing that, like, I had exposure to some of these things, but I didn't have the same kind of direct experience. And so, you know, when there's an opportunity to bring quote unquote adults in the room, you know, you got to take advantage of that. I think it's understanding what your strengths are and what parts of the business are excite you the most and then trying to make, set yourself up to succeed. So a lot of what that required is that like, you know, creating my own, you know, speaking to as many people as I could within the space, speaking to peers, speaking to mentors, and making sure that when I built my own framework for how I did things, that it wasn't like so far removed from how other people did things that it was going to fail, but also made sense for within the context of what does this business need to do and how are we going to do it in a way that feels unique. Right. So like when you're having those conversations and figuring those things out, like do you build out those teams in house or do you go to agencies or like, what did that process look like? I think at different times we've done it that way. I think it's like in the early days, it could be more uh, cost efficient to outsource 
certain functions. And I think as the business has grown, we've tried to bring more of those capabilities in house. I think it's, if you almost equate it to muscle memory, like each time you do something, you become a little bit better at it. And so, especially as it relates to certain parts of media buying or execution and creative, we've tried to bring in a lot of those capabilities and we inform that experience by how we've interacted with the agencies that we like or freelancers that we like. And uh, I still think it's important to work with agencies because they do provide an outside perspective. And of course they benefit from working with clients across generally a variety of verticals and a variety of sizes. So we do like to engage with agencies if, if, you know, if at a minimum it's just an audit, it'll still inform you to make sure that you're thinking about things in a way that makes sense. Right. And I mean, obviously your business is like, well, what, what did you say earlier? Like over 200 people now or over 100, 100. people? 100. Just, Sorry, I just accidentally doubled your, your payroll uh, in one sentence. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. I mean, especially at the scale that you guys have um, and with everything too, like when it came to raising money, was that to fuel marketing or was that mostly to fuel hires or like, what was that like? Well, in the early days, it's like when you're fundraising, that money goes to everything. You, you don't really get the luxury of saying where it goes because, right. um, you know, you don't have enough of a credit history or enough of a financial history to go to a bank and say, you know, I need a open access to capital. So <clears throat> in the early days, our, you know, equity dollars fueled everything. And then, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier, as we've grown, you're able to then finance inventory using debt and then you can use equity to hire people and spend it on marketing and i think we're trying to we're moving towards a place where you know you can get the business to self-finance got it yeah that makes sense um and like speaking of the i kind of want to jump back again to just like i mean how you're able to maintain the whole branding and keep evolving it as it goes like Cause it sounds like a really complicated thing. Like number one, it's like, okay, how can we keep things, you know, not just like present and like updated for the now, but like, how can we take things to like where they need to be in like six months or a year from now? And then at the same time, it's like, I mean, you already have all this momentum. Like, how do you bring those together? Um, do you, have you ever made any mistakes or are you just figuring things out? Like, I guess, how do you do that kind of predictably and like with like certainty and confidence? Yeah, I, I, so I think failure, I'll address the latter part of the question. I think failure is endemic to success because if you don't know what failing looks like, it's harder to know what succeeding looks like. <laughs> um, it kind of all exists on a, a continuum. I think the way that we think about it is risk tolerance. Like how much of our budget are we willing to risk on specific kinds of investments or tests? And, you know, knowing that, okay, let's say 10% of my budget, as long as I'm willing to lose that 10% of my budget, could I still hit the KPIs that I set out to achieve? Or could we still hit our top line business goals? And so that's kind of the way that we think about it. It's like, you're not going to be able to innovate if you're not testing and trying new things. So then knowing that you're going to do so or knowing that you're going to make big strategic investments, can I still hit my numbers within a given time frame? Yeah, and that's it's one thing that's really interesting about your brand that I've been seeing is it's like you guys are almost shifting to more offline stuff. Like you're launching a lot more different stores in person and uh, a lot more other like advertising offline. Yeah, um, I think for us, stores are always a part of the vision for the brand and, you know, credit to Ariel for that. You know, this is a very tactile purchase decision. And, you know, of course, we're going to remove as much friction to purchase online, you know, and that comes in the form of free shipping, free returns, and a, a 90-day trial. 
But for some people, you know, it's still like, I want to go in the store. I want to get that hands-on experience. I want to be able to ask questions and touch and feel things. And it's, you know, we want to make sure that when we provide that store experience, we're in the right neighborhoods, we have the right co-tenants and the right, you know, retail, retail, commercial, residential adjacencies, and that we're providing that high-end service experience. So it's, you know, in the same way, when you see our advertisements or when you go on our website, you walk into a store and it feels like a, you know, for lack of a better word, parachute home. Yeah, that's awesome. And it is really cool how like all your marketing, like whether it's a subway ad or, you know, an email or something, it all really is. I mean, it's all like branded the same. It's really consistent. That's something I think you guys have been able to do really well. And and I think that goes back to kind of like what you're saying, like all your different processes to make sure everybody's on the same page and being really clear on that too. Cause I think so many brands, like they don't even know. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's this, it, it's, we're fortunate in that we've hired people that all kind of are buying into the vision. You know, I don't think anybody, when you ask them when they grow up, they're like, I'm going to work at a sheet and towel company or like, I'm going to work in home linens. Right. Um, so we're fortunate that it's like people see the bigger vision. They see where we're trying to go and people are excited about being a part of it. You know, it's like, you got to make sure that within any business that, all of the stakeholders have enough autonomy to, to build the business up and also grow within their respective roles. And so I think really the, what you see or how the brand is perceived is a, the manifestation of everybody's hard work. Right. Did you ever have any struggles as the business was growing, like letting go of certain parts of things? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I think what's interesting is realizing that you can still be essential without specifically being the person who does something right like without being the hands for everything yeah exactly and it's like ultimately the more things that i let go of the more time i can think about higher level strategy and increasingly that is the way that i provide value to the business is thinking about how everything fits together and that's where the real money's made yeah i guess (laughs) right time will tell give them a raise um um but yeah, no, I, I think that's great. And I, I feel like that's a lot of people. It's like they don't want to let go of the one thing or whatever it is. Just because, I mean, for one, it like feels like more work than more kind of strategic stuff, uh, which is kind of like a weird feeling. You know, it's like, I don't know, it's like going from shoveling and like doing the actual work. Like it feels like hard work versus like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't even know what the bigger project there is. Like finding where the diamonds are to shovel. I don't know what yeah, kind of analogy no, I'm going mean, for I- I think people will always surprise you. You know, it's like there's a reason that you hired somebody and it's because you believe that they had the right vision for the brand. And ultimately it's like not everything is executed exactly the way that I thought, but that's fine because ultimately if the outcome is what we wanted or even better, then it should be, you know, I should be less concerned in a lot of ways about activities and more about outcomes. You know, it's somewhat, that's what is the prevalent beam behind OKRs, but it, in a lot of ways that is what drives being nimble and flexible and autonomous is what theoretically should make a startup succeed. And so the irony is when you set up too many systems and processes and red tape so that you become essentially the business that you're trying to quote unquote disrupt. Right. And it's so cool to hear somebody like you who's like, you know, part of this bigger team now and has been there since day one. Like you're like, yeah, like I totally would have done that differently than this person, but I had to <laughs> let go and yeah. let them. Because I mean, at the end of the day, they get the same outcome. They might even get a better outcome. Exactly. And I'm, I'm, that's the, you know, it's like when, when somebody wins, we all win. And that's been like the, it's been good. It's, I think it's good learning. Right. And I think it comes down to like what you guys seem really clear on 
I mean, you've, you've said this already kind of, but like you're really clear on the vision of the company, like both to the marketplace. And it sounds like internally you guys have a really clear vision on where you want to go. And like the culture of the company sounds really solid. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't be able to attract a hundred people who, you know, you guys trust and are able to just let go and trust everybody to work towards that shared vision. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's, a, it's certainly a good environment. How do you guys like what what is your system or like are, are there any kind of frameworks that you use to, you know, like nail culture and kind of figure out if people would be a culture fit or things like that? Um, I, I would say the, the big thing is making sure that the interview process allows for enough cross functional stakeholders to be involved. I think ultimately it's thinking about not only who are the people that are going to work with that person directly, but also indirectly. Um, because ultimately that will give you a good sense of how things will work. And then also just making sure that there's the appropriate balance of kind of opinions within the broader landscape. You know, it's like we want people to be aligned on the mission, but I think it's okay for there to be discourse and dialogue. We don't necessarily want to have complete groupthink when it comes to making decisions. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I like that. And yeah, just getting clear on that. And I like how you bring people in from other places too, because I mean, at the end of the day, the whole team's going to be working together on the same thing, even though they might not be, you know, at the desk right next to each other. Yeah, I mean, I'm maybe in, I'm personally more, I err on the side of having too many people at a meeting as opposed to too few, because I think in the early days, it, it is good to just have at least be transparent about what you're trying to do and have general consensus, if not per on what is going to be done. And then from there, it's easier to kind of like pull out specific groups and work on specific things. And then as I mentioned, just focus more on the outcomes and allowing people to achieve them. Right, and making sure everybody's on the same page. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. So I, I wanna flash back real quick, I, and we're starting to run out of time here, but the one last thing I wanna cover is like, if, if we were to flash back to, you know, when Parachute was just, I mean, not just beginning, but you guys were just starting to get traction, you're making a decent amount of revenue, and you guys are ready to kick things in the next gear, into the next gear and take it to the next level. Like, knowing what you know now and knowing what, you know, the current landscape is in 2019, like, how would you approach that nowadays? Like, so you have this initial traction, you're doing a decent amount of revenue, it's starting to grow. Like, how would you kind of like pour gas on that fire? Or what would kind of your strategy be for, for growing that company? Let's say it's just pure online play right now. Yeah, um, I think the big thing is understanding. Well, I guess it just depends what your end goal is. It, it's going to, unfortunately, my uh, answer is going to sound a little bit cliche. I think the biggest thing that, because I think the hard thing is anticipating what comes in the future, like the path that the company took to get here, there were pitfalls, but I think there was like individual tactics that could be changed. I think the overall strategy, I agree with, like for us, it was about building the brand a little bit slower than you would think and a little bit more methodically. And so there's individual tactics that didn't go well, but I think the overarching customer first approach was hugely important. And so like for me, as long as you know that you can grow the business faster without potentially sacrificing the product or the service experience, or like essentially losing those unique value propositions or differentiators that make your brand distinctly it, you know, it or, you know, itself, then I think you can continue on the path. But if there's a point at which the pace of growth is going to outstrip the pace of being able to maintain that same level of brand experience, then I think you're going to get in trouble. 
Right. How do you stand out when you're in such a competitive space? Like, I mean, this wasn't a super competitive space like that long ago, but it seems like now a lot of the top players in direct-to-consumer e-commerce and just in general direct-to-consumer market seem to be in like a similar space as you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's established. Some of it is luck. I mean, I think the time at which certain companies launched is directly correlated to their existence today. You know, that you see a lot of companies clustered in like 2011, 2012, and then later 2014, 2015. And there's, you know, there's a, a reason for that because the certain, the marketplace at that time allowed for it. I think in this day and age, it's just important to have a sense of what your point of view is and increasingly what your platform is because the brands that are growing and becoming bigger than what they initially were are looking beyond their initial product offering and thinking about, you know, where they fit within their customers' lives. Got it. Yeah. And then all goes back to kind of like what you were saying earlier too, like knowing the vision and knowing what you're working towards too. Yeah. You know, it's like, you'll, you don't know it, there's an inflection point until you experience it. <laughs> so that's right. why I guess I had a little bit of difficulty answering your question. It's like, you don't see the hockey stick until you look back on it and you're like, oh, wow, that was great. <laughs> right. Like it just feels uh, like a lot of work the whole time. Yeah. And a lot of it is kind of like a lot of the quote unquote overnight successes could be like someone's second or third startup or it could be something they've been ideating and noodling on for many years. So I, I think, you know, there are certain factors and tactics can lead to slightly faster paces of growth. But at the end of the day, everything needs to fit within a prevailing vision of the brand. Yeah, I like that. And what is Parachute's vision? Um, I think for us, it's just, it's the, it's, as I mentioned, it's the feeling of home, giving you the feeling of home potentially wherever you are. So, you know, in certain regards, it can relate to products and others, it can relate to service. I think we don't necessarily want to be confined to being a bedding bath or even, you know, rug or mattress company. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. So as we start to wrap up here, uh, you dropped a ton of value. Really excited to get this episode out. Um, but before we sign off, do you have any closing thoughts or words of advice to end on that we didn't cover? Or it could be something we already covered and you just drill into it more. Avoid complacency. <laughs> Wherever, However it manifests itself, I think feeling that you've quote unquote made it is probably the hardest feeling because and invariably there's something you could be doing different. You've made it, man. You're on the podcast. nowhere to go but up baby (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) no but i i totally agree and i think it's funny you know all the things you say it's just like i mean it it really like parachute wasn't an overnight success like i feel like a lot of people look at it and they're like wow look at them advertising like crazy like this e-commerce rocket ship direct-to-consumer rocket ship uh but that's like wait wait a minute they've been around since 2014 it's like i didn't know parachute existed back in 2014 exactly me get, you, yeah, <laughs> you did all the hard work, uh, you know, day in and day out and did the hard things, let go of the things that you're like, oh, I don't, I, ah, I don't really want to let go of that. And you let go of it and everything turned out to be okay. I, yeah, I think uh, that's a key takeaway. It's just like make sure that, you know, you're maximizing your time however you spend it and that you're, you know, you're happy with what you're doing within any business environment. That's awesome. So yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. As we wrap up here, where can we go to learn more about you and Parachute? Of course, the best place to look is parachutezone.com. And if you want to experience the brand IRL, of course, go check out our stores page with on our website. Um, If you want any daily inspiration, either subscribe to our emails or check out our Instagram and or Pinterest 
feeds and you know continue about your merry lives and you you'll likely bump into us at some point (laughs) i love that you'll likely bump into us that's a marketer talking um that's awesome thanks so much for coming on the show luke yeah thanks for having me now listener before i sign off stop me if this sounds familiar your email marketing is stuck you feel like you could be doing email better you're not generating enough email revenue and you feel like you're leaving money on the table but you don't have the time to figure email out yourself or or do it on your own because you have a business to run. Imagine this. Imagine not having to worry about leaving money on the table with your email marketing. Imagine not having to figure out what to send, when to send it, how many emails should look, what automation you need, what segments you need, how often you should be contacting your email list or just worrying about sending the next email. You don't have to worry about any of that. Imagine having peace of mind knowing that your email marketing is generating sales in good hands. At Wavebreak, we help Shopify stores maximize their email marketing revenue. That's it. We don't do anything else. And we've created a system called the Wavebreak method that, number one, makes you less dependent on Facebook or other marketing channels. Let's say something bad happens. Facebook says, see you later, Shopify store, and they just completely kill your ad traffic overnight. You don't have to worry. You don't have to stress because you're good to go because you have a cushion of email revenue. You don't have to worry about how or what what your wife is going to do or if you're going to be able to make rent or if you're going to be able to pay people because you have this cushion of email revenue to rely on. Number two, the second thing this does is huge and it's how stores scale from seven figures to eight figures to nine figures. And the secret is repeat purchases. The Wavebreak method gets rid of one-time buyers and increases repeat orders. Number three, it keeps your email list engaged. You don't have to worry about Black Friday and beyond. We'll figure out the ideal amount of times that your list needs to be contacted to maximize revenue, and then we'll execute it for you. If you want to learn more about this system and how we can work together to apply it to your business, go to wavebreak.co to schedule a call with me. And I'll personally send you my calendar link and we can chat one-on-one. Now, I don't have unlimited time to do these calls. I can only do a couple of them per week. So if you want to get your call, uh, go sign up at wavebreak.co for it as soon as possible. And we can talk about how we can work together. Thanks for listening to this episode. Subscribe to the show on iTunes to get notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. 